Welcome to Massive Late Fee, and now your hosts, Mark and Carol. Hey everybody, it's February 26, 1994. Welcome back to Massive Late Fee. My name is Mark. With me as always is my girlfriend, Carol. How are you doing, Carol? Uh, hey, what's up? We've had a, uh, a good week here at Massive Late Fee, uh, as always. Let's uh, get right into the news. Uh, this week, I read uh, from my LA Times subscription, David Letterman wants... Tom Snyder to host the show after his show on CBS. I don't know if it's going to happen. Uh, For those of you who are maybe just a bit too young to remember, although I'm sure that there are some of you in the audience that do remember, Tom Snyder used to host a show called The Today Show, which aired after um, Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. Okay. So it used to be NBC had The Today Show in the morning, then they had the Tonight Show at night with Johnny Carson. Then the Tomorrow Show. That's what it was called. Sorry, the Tomorrow Show. Oh. After the Tonight Show. Interesting. David Letterman actually replaced Tom Snyder with his own show that appeared after Johnny Carson's show in 1983, I believe it was. So now, last year, as most of you know, there was a big fight. Who's going to take over Johnny Carson's position on The Tonight Show? Jay Leno won, unfortunately. <laughs> and David Letterman moved to CBS to host his own 1130 show at CBS. And as part of that contract, he was allowed to produce the show that appears after his. So now he is on the lookout for who's going to host the show that's eventually going to appear after his. He said that... Maybe the first of next year would be as soon as they'd get somebody in. They're doing, I guess, a lot of exhaustive searching. But he is a big fan of Tom Snyder. Tom Snyder works at CNBC, which is NBC's cable uh, channel. I, I don't watch it. I don't believe it comes on our cable package. But he hosts a show there. I think they do mostly news okay. on CNBC. NBC says that, they, that he... Uh, produces a lot of ratings for them so they would fight pretty hard to keep him obviously david letterman's on cbs that's a different network so it looks unlikely that that tom snyder will will assume that role but that was that was david letterman's opining saying he he really likes tom snyder so i guess we'll have to see what happens yep uh the olympics obviously is big news for cbs the aforementioned cbs it looks like they're going to shatter some records as far as ratings go for the Olympics. A big part of that is what they're calling Skategate. <laughs> That's uh, the Tanya Harding, uh, Nancy Kerrigan sort of battle. Everyone's waiting for that showdown. That's going to be coming very, very soon. End of this month. Cannot wait. And that, yeah, that is going to be very exciting. But besides that... They're putting up big ratings on a lot of the other events, too. It looks like it's going to be the biggest ratings in Olympic history. So definitely a big win for CBS. Wow. The other thing, Carol, that I read about at the LA Times, and when we talked about that article last week, Rod Dubrow, uh, he he writes for the LA Times. So you got to find the LA Times or get a subscription to it like I did if you want to read his work. But anyway, he wrote an article or actually I don't think he wrote this article but there was an article in the LA Times uh, that I think you'll enjoy that was critical of a movie that we did Ace Ventura Pet Pet Detective well anything that's critical of Ace Ventura Pet Detective I will enjoy you are correct (laughs) they the writer had a problem with the homophobic jokes okay in the movie I can see that I think the article was titled hey Ace homophobia is not funny or something like that and it basically it just pointed out how he had kissed uh, that I can't it's Sean Young's character, but I can't remember her name yeah. off the top of my head now. But he kissed her character, found out it was a guy, and there was this long extended montage of him throwing up, brushing his teeth, all this kind of stuff. Showering. Yeah. yeah. The the person pointed out that Jim Carrey is a talented comedian, and it was unfortunate that he felt he had to use 
homosexuality as a punchline in a movie. And they pointed out how with Philadelphia, other things like that, Hollywood had taken big strides in positive directions for positive depictions of homosexuals. But this was another example of the bad things that Hollywood does sometimes as far as homosexuality goes. Yeah, step, step back. Two steps forward, one step back. So it was a, uh, it was a big... It was a, a big criticism of that film. Now, on to our TV picks of the week. It's a little more happier news. <laughs> this week, I watched The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. This is in its fourth season, obviously, and it's a very popular show for NBC. Will Smith is... He started out, I remember... When I was I was pretty young when he came onto the scene with DJ Jazzy Jeff and did Parents don't, Just Don't Understand, uh, Nightmare on My Street. I, I love remember. Nightmare on My Street. Yeah, that's uh, there. There's an interesting story behind that. They that was supposed to be for the movie, mm-hmm. and they recorded it. They wanted a hip hop track or a rap track for the movie, and they recorded it, and then the uh, New Line Cinema that does Nightmare on Elm Street, they decided that they weren't going to use it. They wanted to go with the Fat Boys cover from Freddy's Better Watch Out for Freddy or something like that. Okay. Get Ready for Freddy. That's what it was called. Get Ready for Freddy. That was the Fat Boys track that did end up on the soundtrack. So they created a music video, Will Smith and DJ Jazzy Jeff, and they created the song. And New Line Cinema said that they can't have this music video and any, because they released the song. They okay. weren't supposed to, I guess they weren't supposed to release the song, but they released their song on their own, oh, wow. on their own album. And they, New Line Cinema said, you have to have a disclaimer that this has nothing to do with Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy Krueger, and it's not sanctioned by us because they thought that it would take away from the sales of the Fat Boy, okay. uh, the Fat Boys song that they that they commissioned for the film. Well, the disclaimer is really not going to matter. When I think it's it, to sales. Well, I think it's dumb too because the the Will Smith DJ Jazzy Jeff song was much more popular mm-hmm. in the you know the late eighties and then into the early nineties, and I think it's not talked about a lot now. But I think it remains much more popular than Get Ready for Freddy. They should have just embraced it. Yeah. They should have just said, that fine, associate it with our movie, and, and maybe it will have more people like to see our films. Right. Anyway, so he's very popular, obviously, now. Looks like he might start to branch out into films. I know he was in that Six Degrees of Separation movie. He was very good in that. And I think, you know, that uh, he might... It, do some more things in movies, I think. His show, obviously, is super popular right now. But the title of this episode was You Better Shop Around. And in it, Will Smith goes with Carlton and Uncle Phil because Uncle Phil is shopping around for a new car. Uh-huh. Carlton's trying to get him to buy this boxy, fuel-efficient, kind of bland car. So a Carlton car. Yes, exactly. And Will wants him to get this flashy kind of sports car. And he lays on this big sales pitch because Will wants to borrow the car. Right, That's a big reason why he wants him to get it. But he lays on the sales pitch about remember when you were young and, you know, the wind blowing through your hair and all this stuff. And Robert Guillaume, who played Benson on the TV show Benson. And for those of you who remember when you were a real little kid like me, Soap, the TV show Soap, which was great, he played the same character Benson on that show. The weirdest the weirdest sitcom spin-off ever because somehow he went from being a butler on Benson to being assistant to the governor <laughs> on his own show. Wow. Benson. But anyway, so he's guest starring as the car salesman. He kind of hears what Will's doing mm-hmm. and he comes over and says, "Hey, you know, that was pretty good." And he writes out a check and hands it to him. For a thousand dollars, and he says that's the commission on selling one of those cars. 
And then he takes, he's like, wait a second. He takes it and he rips it up and says, I can't give commission to people that aren't salespeople. And basically he says, you should come and work for me as a salesperson. Will doesn't want to at first because obviously he's in college. Right. So he, he ends up convincing him to come work for him on the weekends, on Saturday and Sunday when he's not in school. So he does, he starts selling a lot of cars, making a lot of money, and it's like slowly he convinces him, oh, you should just quit school and work for me full time, make it's all so this money. Sleazy. What a terrible thing to do. Yeah, he uh, he's not exactly, well, he's a car salesman, so right, right. He's, he's definitely playing that sleazy role to the hilt. But uh, obviously Uncle Phil and Aunt Viv don't think it's a good idea. Carlton doesn't think it's a good idea. Will kind of makes the argument that you go to college to find out what you want to do with your life and I'm really good at selling cars and I'm making a lot of money doing it. So why shouldn't I just do it? Uncle Phil sort of relents. Aunt Vivian calls her sister, Will's mom. (laughs) And eventually she shows up to chew him out and make him go back to school. So... Carlton, or I mean, uh, Will and Uncle Phil sort of have this conversation about how school is about finding out who you are and and all this these kinds of things, and that you know he came here to have a better life, and being a car salesman wouldn't accomplish that, and that sort of ends the episode. I thought it was weird though because you can find your you don't have to go to college to find yourself right. necessarily. That's sort of just part of growing up, and he was really good at it, and he was making a lot of money. Yeah, who's to say that he's going to make that much money with whatever degree he gets in college? Exactly. And he liked doing it. Because Uncle Phil, one of the, Uncle Phil's points was, you need to find what your passion is in college. But he seemed like he was having a good time being a car salesman. Right. The one thing that I will point out is that Robert Guillaume's character made him fire one of the salespeople. Oh, that yeah. That actually turned out to be Robert Guillaume's brother. And... So he fires him, and all his kids. He's got six kids. Their he's mother, a single dad. their mother died. Yeah. So at first, Will doesn't want to do it, but then he starts to enjoy firing people and enjoy being kind of a boss type character. So Uncle Phil points out that the job did not really bring out his best qualities. Oh, that's true. So you know, I, that's that's definitely something to think about. But like always, it wasn't the best episode of. The Fresh Prince I've ever seen. It wasn't the quote unquote most special episode. They get it's very it's a very funny show, but they get serious sometimes as well. But it was a, a sol- just a solid another solid episode of The Fresh Prince of Bel Air. So if you haven't seen the show, definitely check it out. And obviously, if you like the show, we we agree it's a it's a very good show. Yeah. So Carol, she, she saw. Yeah, I, I watched The Simpsons. Right. And um, it was it was a good episode. I enjoyed it. Um, so starts out that uh, Homer's at you know work at the plant, and every single other employee has won employee of the week at some point or another. So he knows that today is his day because it's in the union rulebook that everyone gets to win it at least once. Right. But Mr. Burns gives employee of the week to a steel rod or aluminum rod. I think it's a carbon rod. Carbon rod. It's the, the one of the plutonium things. Yeah. Instead of Homer. So, you know, huge, huge slap in the face. Um, he's, you know, obviously not feeling great about himself. Not not in the best, best mood at all. And, um, you know, his family <laughs> helps him. As as always, uh-huh, not really. Right. Um, with yeah, his they self-esteem, exactly. Bart draws insert brain here on the back of his head. Yeah, and then I mean, then it goes kind of the you know absurd um, with him rolling around on the floor like a dog. But I, that's one of the things I like about the show is the show has a lot of different that in you know we're in the fifth season of The Simpsons, which is just one of the funniest shows. I I, I almost can't even imagine the show ever not being good. Yeah. But it's one of the funniest shows on TV. But I like they have a lot of different types of humor. They'll go very absurdist sometimes, like you pointed out with that. There's a lot of satire, especially politically or pop culturally bent. Yeah. Uh, there's stuff that, that are just kind of standard one-liners. There's farce. There's a lot of different types of humor that they'll cram into each episode, which is, is just tremendous. So, yeah, so um, then, you know, he's at the bar getting drunk, 
And he gets upset about the space launch that they're talking about on the TV. Yeah, well, first, they were watching the space launch on TV, and they, they turned it off because they didn't want to watch it, Bart and, okay, and Homer. Okay, yeah, that was it. And we go to NASA, where they're upset because their ratings are, are down. Yeah. So they're not caring about the actual exploration of space. They're concerned that their ratings for watching these launches are down. So he calls because he's mad about them being on the TV and him not wanting to watch and explain. And he's describing himself exactly as to what they're talking about they need to appeal to as being, you know, the blue collar, you know, just working guy. So they decide the next day to come and try to find him Mm -hmm. because they get the brilliant idea that if they put a civilian that, you know, people can identify with on the space shuttle that people will want to watch. Right. So when they come, they're asking, you know, for for him if he's the one that made the call, and he's saying no. And then uh, Barney says, oh, it was me. So they're going to take Barney, and they decide to take both of them because finally Homer realizes what, what's happening. And yeah, that he can get he can get some kind of some kind of accolades from this. Right. So, um, yeah, so they take both of them, and they put them in, like, a competition with each other to see who gets to actually go on the space mission. Um, and the most amazing thing happens. They tell Barney he can't drink for the next three weeks. And uh, he just snaps into the best shape ever and he's all of a sudden he's smart he's taller he's thinner right and um he's just you know kicking homer's butt he's totally gonna win and um at the end they're they're celebrating with you know champagne toast that then sends barney over the edge he runs off and just starts acting like a maniac and goes right back to his old self instantly becomes out of shape again yeah (laughs) it's the it's the most bizarre thing you've ever seen um so, yeah, so Homer gets to go. And the punchline of that is that uh, the scientist says, I don't understand, it was non-alcoholic champagne. Right. That <laughs> was all it is said. And then, of course, you know, Homer being the dumb, dumb guy that he is, has to mess it up and ends up on, on the space shuttle, um, smuggles potato chips. Yep. And opens the bag, so they're weightless, and they start flowing everywhere, and they're getting into the instruments, and, you know, he causes severe damage. And then he's trying to fix it, and he bumps into the ant farm. Right. So they've got potato chips and ants floating around. And the ants are getting into the instruments and destroying computer chips and things like yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, really bad. Um, and then, you know, his solution is to float around. In, in true Homer fashion, just eating potato chips. Right. There. They call who James Taylor. For some reason, James Taylor's at NASA, and he's singing songs yeah. to them to calm them down, <laughs> I guess. But uh, he says, oh, when uh, when ants got loose on our vineyard, in our vineyard or something like that, he says we used uh, vacuum and negative pressure to get rid of them. So NASA basically says... Okay, so what we're going to do is open the airlock and allow everything to flow out and you know, strap ourselves down so we don't get rid of all that stuff and then close the door. So Homer, they do that and Homer starts flying, right. grabs the door because he's going to be uh, sucked out into space, ends up bending the door handle mm-hmm. while he's doing it. So then they pull him back in, but the door won't close because the handle's broken. So they can't obviously re-enter the Earth's atmosphere with the door open or they'll, they'll burn, burn up. up. So then they use the carbon pipe that they have aboard. Right. It's Homer's idea. Yep. To uh, shut the door and keep it keep it latched. So in the end, that brings it, you know, back full circle. Yep. That stupid carbon pipe ends up saving his ass. Yeah, they and they they ha- the astronauts and NASA hail him as a hero. Mm-hmm. But when they come down, they, they, and they're like, oh, it was all Homer's idea and this carbon pipe that saved us. And everyone in the media is like, oh, that carbon pipe, let me see that. So they start taking pictures of the pipe, and the, the pipe is the hero. Yeah, they're doing a parade with the pipe in, in the, on the float, and yeah, it's, it's funny. It's a, very, that's, it's a very good show. Obviously, Matt Groening, who created the show. Groening? Yeah, I think oh, that's his name. I thought it was Groening. No. I think it's pronounced Groening. Oh, okay. I think. 
But uh, he, uh, you know, obviously he's a genius. The show is tremendous. I'm looking forward to, you know, more years of this show. I'm sure Fox will keep it on for, you know, as long as they want to do it next, you know, five years. Right. Five more years, six more years, something like that. And, you know, you mentioned about the different kinds of humor, and that's that's true with this show, because, you know, I mean, you know I hate dumb humor. Yes. And they do have their fair share of it, but they have enough of the rest of it that it's still good. Yeah. Like like I said, it's it's a good mix of lots of different types of humor. They they go all genres. And so, sometimes there will be an episode where it's all slapstick or something like that. But most episodes, they do a really good mix of different types of things. But our main topic today is Jurassic Park. I know that I know that this is an older film. It came out uh, in the summer of last year. There wasn't anything super good at the theater that we wanted to see. Yeah, it was a bad week. I mean, My Girl 2 was still out. Looks sort of interesting, but I'm not... Carol wasn't super interested in seeing it. I'm not super interested in seeing it. Blank Check is obviously a, a kitty movie. Right. Uh, and On Deadly Ground, I don't like... I, I only like certain types of action films. Like Die, Die, for instance, Die Hard is one of my favorites. But there are, are certain types of action films I like and certain types I don't like. And the Jean-Claude Van Damme and Steven Seagal... Those kind of action movies I'm not a big fan of. And obviously On Deadly Ground is a Steven Seagal film. So we weren't really interested in seeing that. And then, you know, eight seconds, of course, you know, he doesn't want me to see because it's Luke Perry and he knows that's the only reason <laughs> I want to see it. I'm not into rodeo either. Well, eight, I'm eight not sec- into rodeo either. Eight but... seconds is that rodeo. Well, I don't want to see it for Luke Perry. So. <laughs> so anyway, we decided to go to the Dollar Show, which was still showing Jurassic Park. Amazing movie. Yeah, we've we've both seen it before, but we watched it again. I'm sure you guys have seen it as well. So I I guess this will be sort of a like a retro-y kind of kind of thing. I don't know if it's old enough to say retro, but sure. Well, it's almost not quite a year old. It's about uh, it's not even out on video yet. Nine months or something like that. It's been out in the theater. Anyway, obviously tremendous, tremendous movie. One of the greatest achievements of special effects. Yeah. That I've ever seen, just right off the bat. Breathtaking. The what they did with animatronics and the what do they call it? It's the computer, the computer CGI. Yeah, the computer effects that they do, mixing it in with those two things, just absolutely astounding. One of the best looking movies I've ever seen. You, it, it looks like dinosaurs are real. Yeah, it's for sure. incredibly believable. It's amazing. But for those of you that don't know the plot, or even those of you that do, I guess we'll go over it real quick. Basically, uh, John Hammond has found a way to clone dinosaurs. He wants to build a dinosaur park called Jurassic Park. And there are concerns from investors as to whether or not this is a safe idea. Smart, smart investors. Right. So they bring in some scientists to determine whether or not it's safe. Alan Grant and... Elsie, is that her name Sadler? I know Sadler's her last yeah. name. Yeah, oh, I, I don't, I don't remember. But uh, she, so those two, it's um, oh, what's her name, Laura? Ooh, I can't think of her name, her real name either. Well, I don't know the actress's name. I do, but I can't think of her name off the top of my head. Anyway, so they're the paleontologists. They bring them them in, and the great Jeff Goldblum plays Malcolm. Um. Something. I can't think of his last name either. Yeah. We just well, we just saw because, this. It's because they called each other doctor the whole movie and everybody just called him Malcolm. Yeah, Even that's though true. I think he was also a doctor. Yeah. He's a mathematician. Anyway, so they they, they bring him in and they do they do the tour. There's a lot of humor in the film, especially yeah. from, from Malcolm, Jeff Goldblum's character. My favorite line is when he looks at the video camera when they're on the tour and he kind of taps the glass and he says... Uh, well, there, uh, 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 you know how he talks. Oh, yeah. Will there, will there be any dinosaurs on uh, this dinosaur, dinosaur tour? tour. <laughs> yeah. It's the best. But, so the dinosaurs get out, obviously. Tyrannosaurus Rex gets out. That's the big villain for most of the movie. Yeah. Until the end of the movie when it's the raptors. And so, obviously, all hell breaks loose. They get separated. Everything goes awry, and... 
what's his name, Newman from uh, Wayne Knight, Newman, <laughs> Newman from Seinfeld, causes most of the problems because he's trying to steal uh, the DNA samples for a rival company, InGen, I think it's yeah, called. to sell. To sell them, yeah. That's another very funny line when he's meeting that guy clandestinely. Yeah. And he says, don't, uh, don't say my name. And he goes, Dodson, 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 we got Dodson here. And he looks, he's, see, no one cares. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so that is a very funny part as well. Like I said, everything, you know, all hell breaks loose. And eventually they save each other. They get off, um, they get on the, on the helicopter and they get off the island. Well, you know, the, the true hero of the movie is the Tyrannosaurus Rex. Because mm-hmm. the Tyrannosaurus Rex is the one that really saves them from the raptors. Yeah, at the end, when it, when it eats... The raptor. Yeah. You know what I noticed? Somehow that Tyrannosaurus Rex gets inside that building with no explanation. <laughs> there's there's no door in that building that is big enough for the dinosaur, for the Tyrannosaurus Rex to get in there. And there's no gaping Tyrannosaurus Rex hole where <laughs> it for some reason ran through a wall to get in there. It just was on the outside and then suddenly it's in this enclosed space. And there's the, the it's a gorgeous shot too. Of the banner as it falls to yeah. well, Jurassic Park over uh, over the dinosaur and everything as they're leaving, and I'm sure that's why it was in there for that shot. Yeah, but you don't. I didn't notice it the first time I saw it. I only noticed, and I I went to see it in the theater probably three or four times when it was new. Yeah, and then we watched it again. It wasn't until this most recent viewing when I was sort of thinking more as a critic to talk to you guys about it on the pod on the uh, show. Uh-huh. Um, that I, that it came to my attention. So Spielberg's one of those directors that knows what he can, knows how to fool an audience, basically. He knows when he can do something and when he can't do something. When something will be jarring and people will notice and when he can kind of skirt the rules like that, uh-huh. putting a dinosaur in a building when it couldn't have been in the building and no one will notice it. Yeah. But Spielberg did a tremendous job with this film it's incredibly well directed there there's one scene in particular that really catches my attention when they very first see the dinosaurs the music kind of swells we get a close-up shot the camera pans in to convey the emotion of the realism yeah or the, the realization i mean of dr grant as it's panning into his face and there's a bit of a stretch too as it does that and then we go to a wide shot of the dinosaur, a closer medium shot of the dinosaurs, where we see all the dinosaurs, the brontosaurus and everything kind of roaming free. Then we go to a wider shot where we can see the people to give scale, basically mm-hmm. scale of the person to dinosaur. And then we go back to a close up of the different characters to see their reactions. And then that, then they cut into the uh, Institute where John Hammond is the great Richard Attenborough is explaining to them what, what's all going on, how they did it and everything. But those kind of things, those kind of touches, attention to details, ways to evoke emotion with the camera work is something that Spielberg is obviously known for. And it's just absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I mean, the, the movie is just, it's an experience. It, you know, it's, it's a gift. I, lo- I love this movie. And, um, I don't know. I mean, it's beautiful, but it's also terrifying. And, um, <laughs> I'll never forget the first time I saw it. I saw it with my mom. And at one point, I think it's when the Tyrannosaurus Rex is, um, after the kids in the car. But she grabbed my arm and she was digging in so hard. She was hurting me. <laughs> like I had to st- I had to get her off of me. And, and our friend that was with us, this big, tall, thin guy, he's, like, curled up in the fetal position in this movie theater seat. It was hilarious. Oh, my gosh. It's one of those, yeah, it's one of those movies that, like, I saw it for the first time with my friend Mike, I think. And I think I went to see it with my mom, too. But then you and I saw it together before even this last time that we saw it. I remember I went and said to one of my friends, you got to come see this movie. And I went, it's one of those movies that you see it and then you see it a bunch of other times because you bring other people to the theater. Because you want everyone to, the to see it. Yeah. yeah. 
So, yeah, it's definitely one of those that, that kind of... I mean, it's the epitome of a summer blockbuster. Where that's the kind of excitement and emotion that you're supposed to get from from these movies. It was far and away, I think... I don't know. It's hard to say. I was going to say it was the best movie of the year in 93. But it's tough. There's There's a lot of competition. I mean, Philadelphia came out that year as well. It's the best movie. I'm sorry. You think it's better than Philadelphia? They're different, but I I think, yeah, I mean, Philadelphia is better in certain aspects, but I mean, overall, taking in the whole movie, I gotta say Jurassic Park is better. Well, it won't win the Academy Award. What? I don't don't think it's gonna win the Academy Award for Best Picture because... Why? Because the Academy doesn't really honor those kind of movies. They don't honor summer blockbuster. I mean, they love Spielberg, obviously, which they should, but they don't really honor those kind of films, I don't think. It'll win technical awards. It'll win the special effects awards and st- whatever, you know, th- those kind of awards. Probably editing and stuff, too. But I don't think it will win Best Picture because those kind of movies just don't. But that's an interesting debate because they are different films. Like, let's take Philadelphia because uh, that's the one that, that comes to my mind. That's I guess that's probably going to be my pick for Best Picture in about a month when the Academy Awards, uh, you know, air. Okay. But, because that's the first one that comes to my mind. I mean, that's not my official prediction, everybody. We'll give you those predictions in March when the Academy Awards happen. But just off the top of my head, it was the first one I could think of. Probably because it came out in December. So it came out fairly recently. Yeah. But, so if you look at that movie and you look at Jurassic Park... Yeah, they're they're definitely different. Which one is a better which one's a better example of the art of filmmaking, do you think? Jurassic Park, for sure. But why? Because of the special effects, because of the dramatic tension, because of the I mean like there's not a time in that movie when when you're not just completely engaged and engrossed. I mean Philadelphia is a fantastic movie, fantastic acting, great story. You know, it's it's socially relevant. I mean, there's a lot of great things about it. It's emotionally gripping, too. Yeah, but it's not quite the same level as Jurassic Park. See, I think I kind of agree with you. Even though I think that it won't win for Best Picture, I think if you take everything into consideration from the art of filmmaking, is Philadelphia better acted, Denzel Washington and Tom, and Tom Hanks? Probably. Uh, I think if I remember correctly, Jason Robards is in that too. I think he plays the uh, the boss, the the head of the the uh, law firm where he works, where he gets fired. Are they do they are they better actors? Do they do a better job in their roles than Sam Neill and whatever her name Laura is. <laughs> something? I can't think of her name. Uh, and Jeff Goldblum and Richard Attenborough. Do they do a better job? Probably. I would say I would say probably it's not a huge gap. It's not like in Jurassic Park the acting's bad. The acting's good in Jurassic Park, but I I would say they probably do a better job in Philadelphia. At the same time they have a little more to work with as far yeah. as emotion as far as emotionally charged scenes and stuff you're, like that. You're comparing apples and oranges. I mean with what they have to work with I wouldn't say that they did any less than the actors in Philadelphia. I would. Because their faces, like, the reactions that they have to things, I mean, I I feel like they're very, you know, moving and believable. And just because they don't have times when they're sitting there, you know, having emotional moments and crying and stuff doesn't mean that it's not as good. Well, I agree that that's not why it's not as good. I just happen to believe that Denzel Washington and Tom Hanks in particular were better. That their performances elevated an already strong script into something even better. I don't think that the performances in Jurassic Park necessarily elevate the material. I think it's the same movie with other competent actors with other good actors and they have to be good the one exception might be jeff goldblum i don't know if anyone can do what jeff goldblum does in that movie yeah he is he is hilarious but everyone else is giving 
a and this is no this is not a slam to Sam Neill or, or anyone else, but I I think they're giving a standard performance. The you know what what you would expect from a good actor in that role. I think you could put any other good actor in that role, and it would be the same movie. I don't think you could take Tom Hanks or Denzel Washington out of Philadelphia and it would be the same movie. Okay, I will give you that. So I think the acting is probably better in Philadelphia, but that's it. That's the only thing I think that Philadelphia has on Jurassic Park. If you look at the artistry of the filmmaking as far as angles and camera movement, things like that, the cinematography, the lighting, uh, if you look at the special effects... If you look at how all of this is blended together, I think Jurassic Park is probably a better, a better made film, and a more not I don't want to say competently made film because they're both competently made films, but just a, a better made film, a film that shows more artistry. The, the, Jurassic Park is more of a director's movie. Steven Spielberg has more of a hand in this film for sure than the director of Philadelphia, and I don't even remember who it is had in that film i think that film is more of an actor's film and like i said the acting really really elevates it and the script too because the script is very strong yes but i think jurassic park's more of a director's movie and you can feel steven spielberg's handprints all over the film and his genius all over the film so yeah i agree with you though i think on the whole outside of the acting everything else i think jurassic park is a is a more monumental achievement in film but it won't win Best Picture, unfortunately. We'll see. I mean, I suppose it. I suppose it could. If there's one big rollicking summer blockbuster that could win Best Picture, it would be this movie. But I don't think it's going to. Okay. Uh, anything else that you want to say about Jurassic Park? I mean, it's um, sort of yeah. well-worn territory. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so I have a question. Okay. I've always, I've always had like every time I've seen this movie, I'm kind of debated over the relationship between John Hammond and Dennis, I think is the guy. <laughs> At one point, you know, he says under his breath, like, Dad, do, do you think that he is his dad or do you think he's just being sarcastic? I think he's being sarcastic. I think that Dennis is a person that maybe Richard Attenborough, John Hammond, is a who directed Gandhi, by the way, a fantastic movie, Richard, oh. Richard Attenborough did. But anyway, I think this is the backstory that I kind of get. And obviously, it's all, it's all hinted at. None of this is actually in the film. But my feeling is, is that Dennis came from some kind of broken home or something like that, where maybe even as an, maybe even an orphan where he didn't have a lot of positive role models growing up, which is part of the reason why he's doing this, even though he knows how dangerous what he's doing is. Right. So I think that that's sort of his background. I think that John Hammond found him as a brilliant programmer, because obviously he's a genius. Right, he's the sure. one. He's the one that, even though it fails, it only fails because of him, basically. But he's the one that, that designed all this security protocol he programs the computers he's obviously a genius i think john hammond found him when he was young brought him into the company and fostered him along and they have sort of that type of relationship a a closer working relationship because they've worked together a lot and he's put a lot of trust in him Mm -hmm. and i think he sort of fostered him along yeah, because, I mean, he's kind of almost lecturing him at one point, too, you know, but these are your problems, you know. Like, yeah, exactly. So I think I think that they have that sort of relationship where it's almost like a father-son relationship, but I don't think they're actually biologically related. Right. I think he kind of fostered him along like that, and, you know, that's why he puts all this trust in him. Uh, obviously, misplaced trust, but, yeah, that's that's my feeling on it. What's your favorite scene in the whole movie? Wow. That is a tough one because there are there are a lot of great scenes. I mean that Tyrannosaurus Rex foot coming down yeah. into the mud. <laughs> that's iconic. The couple that I've mentioned so far that are that are funny. Mm-hmm. You know, are are great scenes. Uh the Miss, Mr. DNA when uh <laughs> when he's up there uh dinosaurs. <laughs> that kind of thing where they explain 
how it all happens and everything. That is tough. My favorite scene in the movie. I would say my favorite scene is probably... I know what your favorite scene is. You think you do. Your favorite scene is probably where Jeff Goldblum is sitting on that table with his shirt open. No, (laughs) it is not. (laughs) Oh my. Uh, I think my favorite scene, and just I think this blends a lot of different things together, is when they see the Tyrannosaurus Rex and they're speeding away from it. And Jeff Goldblum says, must go faster, must go faster. (laughs) And you see the dinosaur in the 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 side mirror mm-hmm. where it says objects may be closer than they appear and it's just i think all of it cuz that's that's the humor that's the the emotion the excitement of the movie and the artistry of the way everything's framed the way that side mirror is framed the way their faces are framed the interplay of the camera and the actors i think all that kind of blends together to sort of encapsulate everything that's great about that that film so that's probably my favorite scene that that is definitely one of the best um for me Mm -hmm. and i don't think anybody else probably thinks this is but it's the scene where you know they're turning the power back on okay and they're climbing down that electric fence and there's just so much like tension building Mm -hmm. and they're trying to get timmy to let go and then he gets blown the frick off yep Yeah, I thought about that scene. That scene crossed my mind, actually, when I was thinking about my favorite scenes. The one thing I don't like about that scene is it's another one of those things that Spielberg knows he can cheat on, but it is a cheat. He would not have been electrocuted when that when the electricity came back on. What? Because he's not grounded. He, the only way he'd be electrocuted is if he were on the ground, if he was... If we were, or he was touching some kind of metal that was also grounded. He was just on, he was just holding on to the wires that go across the fence. If if you got electrocuted every time you held the wire where electricity is going through, if you weren't grounded, then those guys that work on the electrical lines would get electrocuted all the time. Really? Yeah, you'd never be able to touch it. The, the only way they get electrocuted is if they come in contact with you know, a piece of the of, of something else that's grounded, that's actually you know grounded. Yeah, you can't. That's uh, that's one of the basis or the basics of electricity. So, so you're telling me that if somebody leapt from the ground onto an electrified fence, nothing's going to happen to them. I don't think so. No. Huh. And if you if he jumped, you know, just just let go and jumped off of it. He wouldn't have gotten electrocuted either. It was only if he had put a foot on the ground while holding it, then he would have been grounded, and then he would have been electrocuted. Interesting. Yeah, so that's another one of those cheats. But yeah, that's that's one of those things that Spielberg knows he can do. You know, I was electrified by a fence once. You were? Yeah. How? I was at my aunt and uncle's farm, and they had cows, and they had an electric fence, and my uncle assured me that the fence was off and that I could pet the cow and they handed me a freaking carrot to feed to the cow and they did not expect me to put the carrot on the fence but I t- put the carrot on the fence so not only did I touch it I touched it with a wet carrot so right yeah I actually flew backwards too wow <laughs> yeah. you're lucky yeah because you know that kind of stuff can stop your heart yeah it, it did not feel good most of the time when people get like hit by lightning, you mm-hmm. know, a lot of them will live. The The danger is that that surge of electricity sends your heart out of rhythm into a dysrhythmia. Okay. If you, if doctors can get your heart back into a normal rhythm, most of the time you're okay. There's not any like extreme long lasting problems from it. You know, I just felt like, like I was, it hurt, you know, like it was kind of like physically painful in my arm and I kind of felt like a vibration for a while. Like I got electrocuted once, but no, nowhere near that severe. It was from a, uh, a socket okay. that I, I think the wire was broken or something like that. So it wasn't a lot of voltage coming through. It was low voltage, but I touched it and I felt that like vibration all of a sudden mm-hmm. in my hand. And it's almost like, it's like a tingling feeling. And then it's like tingling, but also hot kind of feeling. Okay. And then um, 
you just kind of like your whole your whole body just kind of vibrates, you know, and it leaves like a weird taste in your mouth. That's that was my experience with it. So be careful out there with electricity, guys. Right? Yeah, don't don't play with uh, don't play with wires. But if you don't have anything else for no, Jurassic no. Park, then I, mean, uh, I could talk about it all day, but we can be done. It's a great movie. It Obviously, is. it's still at the Dollar Theater. I think it's still at some first run theaters as well. But definitely check it out at the Dollar Theater. Save yourself some money for sure if you can. I assume that that will be on video in I don't know what a while after it gets out yeah. of theaters. So it could be six months from now or something like that. Yeah, probably a while. But. We will finish this week, as we finish all of our weeks, with our blockbuster pick of the week. We have a, uh, (laughs) this is sort of a different take on our blockbuster pick of the week. There wasn't a lot of great things at blockbuster. We thought about talking about an older movie, but we decided not to. Although, every once in a while we will go into the past to recommend something that's not necessarily on the new release shelf that we think is something that's valuable for you guys to to check out. But this week, we are talking about Needful Things. The movie based on the Stephen King book that came out last year, starring Ed Harris and Bonnie Bedelia and Max von Sydow as Leland Gaunt. I don't recommend this one. Yeah, no, it it was pretty boring. Carol didn't even finish it. Couldn't do it. She was. She expressed interest in seeing it, even though I told her I saw it in the theater, and it wasn't very good. See, I love horror movies, and I just figured that you didn't love horror movies the way that I love horror movies. But I love Stephen King, That's and that's a big part of the reason why I don't like this movie. <laughs> this movie does a lot of things wrong from the book. The book is... The book's one of those things where the basic plot of this movie and the book is that a new person moves into Castle Rock, a town that Stephen King has used a lot famously in his books, and he opens up a shop called Needful Things that has something for everybody. It's something that you really want. It's like the thing you want most in the world. He knows it, and he has it. And it with each person... It's sort of it can give you visions or or just in the book in the in the movie it's more visions in the book it's more of a deep emotional feeling almost like being in uh, what do they call it meditation okay yeah where like you're in a Zen type area you close your eyes and the things you're seeing are what you're picturing your it's your imagination in the book you're creating the scenario it's not doing it but it's giving you this deep emotional feeling and connection right almost like an addiction to okay. these to these things the price is there's a price in money and then there's the price in a favor i don't think he ever actually says the word favor in the movie in the book it's always a favor do me a favor and it's usually some weird prank and in the book <clears throat> it's this small town where everyone has grudges against other people for various reasons. And Stephen King, like he usually does, takes a long time setting up all the different people, all the different characters, and their relations to each other, why they don't like each other, the different feuds and everything like that. And then Leland Gaunt goes to the work of basically destroying everybody, or put turning everyone against each other, by, I'll give you an example, Brian Rusk, the first person that actually goes to his thing, he has him throw mud at Wilma Jerzak's sheets. And Wilma Jerzak and Nettie Cobb don't like each other because of Nettie's dog barks and their neighbors. So Wilma Jerzak thinks that Nettie Cobb does it, so she retaliates against her. And he does that with with everybody in town, basically. To, to where it comes to a head and everyone's fighting each other. It's like a big civil war brawl, brother against brother, <laughs> fight in the streets. Okay. And the only person who's immune from it is Sheriff Pangborn because Sheriff Pangborn didn't want anything from the shop. Hmm. He's And in the book, it's heavily implied that, because the book before this was the dark half about Thad Beaumont and his alter ego, George Stark, who somehow came to life and everything like that. It's another supernatural book. But it's heavily implied that Sheriff Pangborn's experience with that sort of makes him immune to what's going on this this dark influence plus he's not really feuding with anyone 
So he sort of removed, and he's an outsider to the town anyway. He didn't grow up in Castle Rock, so he's also sort of removed in that way as well. Anyway, so he's the only one that's, he's basically the hero of the book and the movie. And he's the only one that can stop Leland Gaunt. So that's sort of how the book goes. It's almost impossible to film, to be honest with you, because of the size of the book, for one, they would have to be multi-parts. And just, there are things that are very interesting to read that aren't very visual. Right. That wouldn't be interesting as a movie. And a lot of this, the relationships between the different people is are interesting to read with their inner monologues, the way they interact and everything like that. But it wouldn't be super interesting to see on film. So I will give the filmmakers a bit of a pass in the fact that this is a hard movie, desired book to make into a film. But they didn't do a good job. But my question is, then why do it in the first place? Well, they, why does everybody need to take a book that's good and make it into a freaking movie? Because they don't have any ideas. <laughs> so that's why. And with, and with Stephen King, you can put Stephen King's name on something and expect to make X amount of dollars on it. Right. And I think that's part of the reason, too. I know Stephen King gets upset with a lot of... Because a lot of his books that are made into movies are not very good. There are obviously notable exceptions. Carrie, the first one Brian De Palma did, was very good. The Shining, Stephen King hates. Shining is amazing. Stephen King hates The Shining, hates Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. That's what he calls it. Love it. But uh, anyway, uh, but it is a great movie. It's just not exactly like the book, but it is a very good movie. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, they they think they can make a certain amount of money on it, but it's not good. It's boring for the most part. And when it does ramp up, it doesn't get super exciting. They take lines from the book, but they place them in different places. And they're out of place. They don't make a lot of sense. There's just a lot that they did wrong here. It's basically like they took the book, they threw it against a wall, and they said, okay, this will stick, and this will stick, and this will stick. And then they tried to cobble together a film out of it. Okay. Max von Sydow's good. Max von Sydow's always good. Obviously, a lot of people will remember him from The Exorcist. Ed Harris is good. Ed Harris is a solid actor. And Bonnie Bedelia is passable in her role as Polly. Everyone else is just sort of uh, doing a bad main accent. (laughs) But, you know, it's just, it's it's not a good film. So this is not one we recommend. This is one we recommend you stay away from. Yeah, don't don't waste your time on this one. So, yeah, I think videos go for about $3.50 now. Uh, to rent, so do not spend your three dollars and fifty cents on this. Find something else. Uh, maybe get The Exorcist. There you Ma- go. Max von Sydow's good. If you're looking for a spooky movie, Max von Sydow's great in that film, and that is a, a classic. Obviously, Rosemary's Baby's another one. The Shining. Yeah, get The Shining. Another Stephen King one. Even Carrie, Sissy Spacek, uh, a young John Travolta is in that film. It's uh, that that one's a solid one. So there are other ways that you can go, but don't rent needful things. It's just a waste of time. Well, that is our show for this week, uh, February 26th, 1994. Thank you for listening. As always, if you want to contribute a dollar, help to keep the show going, that goes into Carol's Locker. If you have any questions or suggestions for our show, you can put that in my locker. And we will see you next time on Massive Late Fee. Thanks for watching. Thanks, everybody.